When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Before we begin today, I'd like to recommend the French History Podcast by Gary Giraud. It's a narrative podcast in the same way that Pax Britannica is, but beginning much, much earlier in history. Gary has started his narrative before humans first arrived in the region of modern France, and is currently in the era of Roman Gaul after it was conquered in Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. He has also interviewed a number of experts on a range of subjects, which are highly worth checking out. Go listen to the French History Podcast wherever you find good podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 26. The King is Dead. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week we covered the romantic comedy that was the Spanish match, Charles appeared at the Spanish court, not as Prince Charming, but as a particularly large spanner shoved into the works of diplomacy. The Count de Olivares had to work around this spanner, and used every excuse he could think of, including the Pope, to try and get out of the marriage negotiations without sparking a war. However, Charles and Buckingham's experiences in Madrid were a ticking time bomb, as... Publicly humiliated, the two returned to England with war firmly at the front of their minds. They prevailed on James, still the peacemaker, to call a parliament. James had, premeditatedly or not, dissolved the 1621 parliament in a fury after it overstepped its bounds. But this new parliament would be different. Not that anyone knew it yet, but it would also be James's last Parliament. The Parliament that gathered in February 1624 was a product of its time. The xenophobic atmosphere which was common in England, both towards the Spanish themselves and their foreign religion, had only increased over the preceding years. The previous Parliament, held three years earlier, had been vocal in its opposition to the Spanish match and in its support of war with Spain to support Protestant rulers in Europe. In the subsequent years, 
the violence only increased, with the Austrians appearing to be winning handily. The Spanish match affair had climaxed in Charles and Buckingham's impromptu, incognito, visit to Madrid. As we saw last week, the visit was a disaster for those in both the Stuart and Spanish courts who desired peace, but maybe not marriage, between the British and Iberian kingdoms. Charles and Buckingham, the two most powerful people in the Three Kingdoms after James himself, had left Spain with a fervent belief that the Spaniards had, for many years, been negotiating in bad faith. They were probably right, but James would not hear of it. The prince and the duke were public in their conclusions, and were praised in the English popular press for ferreting out the Spanish deception. As we also touched on last week, when James finally relented and called for a parliament, the anti-Spanish, anti-Catholic rhetoric reached a fever pitch. If one of the similarities between the 1621 and 1624 parliaments were their desire for war with Spain, then the other was in their hatred for the Duke of Buckingham. Both houses had their reasons. Buckingham was despised in the Lords for massively expanding the aristocracy, a fairly tiny community with dynastic lines traced back centuries, and he profited handsomely from expanding it. In terms of numbers, for the entire period that Buckingham was ascendant, the number of English peers rose from 81 to 126, and the number of earls from 27 to 65, all in the span of a decade or so. In the Commons, it was the Villiers clan's stranglehold on trade monopolies as well as general corruption. Of course, neither house was united in their dislike of the Duke, and he had supporters in both bodies. But he was widely disliked, and this opposition would only grow as the decade wore on. For all his faults, though, Buckingham was a somewhat competent politician, and his realignment towards war won him many friends in Parliament, if only temporarily. Charles and Buckingham began making great use out of the large factions within Parliament that were pro-war. In many cases, die-hard enemies of the Duke in 1621 found that their hatred of the Spanish won out over their hatred for Buckingham. These included the Earls of Essex, Southampton, Oxford and Pembroke, as well as Coke and Sandys in the Commons, all of whom had been opposed to Buckingham three years previously. They assembled a so-called Patriot Coalition to press for war. In opposition to this call for war was the King himself, ever the peacemaker, and the Earl of Middlesex, Lord Treasurer Lionel Cranfield. War was expensive, and Cranfield was desperately trying to restore royal finances. If Parliament granted subsidies, he didn't want it wasted on foreign adventures. The last thing the Treasury needed was a gruelling conflict which had no guarantee of ending quickly. This was sensible and practical, and unfortunately the exact opposite of what Middlesex's old patron wanted. If you recall, Cranfield had only received his first position out of the favour of Buckingham, but since then Cranfield had become Middlesex, and the two had grown increasingly apart. Middlesex 
saw the Duke as one of the most voracious money pits in the kingdom, aside from the king himself, which was true. Buckingham saw Middlesex as a threat to his and his family's control of patronage. This was also true. Now, however, the two courtiers found themselves on opposite sides of a very public political conflict. When Parliament opened in February 1624, James asked both houses to consider whether to break off the negotiations with the Spanish over a marriage between the Infanta and the Prince. Now, he knew that this would be a yes, but James hoped that this would be an acceptable compromise. It wasn't itself an act of war, which the king still hoped to avoid, but publicly ending the unpopular policy might appease the war party. However, the Commons didn't immediately begin discussing the marriage. They had learnt from 1621, when their debate on the topic had led to a very angry king and a parliament dissolved. Even with permission, there was a chance that they might go too far for the government to accept and be dissolved before they could do anything. Instead, several bills which had been left unfinished in 1621 were resurrected and passed which itself shows how much continuity there could be between parliaments, even with years between them. As part of their efforts to woo parliament, both Charles and Buckingham gave their accounts of their time in Spain. Buckingham was especially embellishing, which was understandable considering that he was speaking to a hostile audience. Both the houses were broadly speaking in favour of war, especially in the Lords, but it was the commons which had the power of the purse, and they had questions. Croft puts it best, quote, The lower house was profoundly anti-Spanish, and delighted at the abandonment of the match, but a war raised complex issues, even among those who favoured it. How and where would it be fought? A naval attack on Spain and her forces in the Atlantic, often described as a blue-water strategy? But... How could that bring about the restoration of the land-bound Palatinate? In addition, in the event of a war, there would be at least two fronts. The first, in foreign lands or seas, where the actual fighting would happen, but any war against Catholic powers was ideological as much as strategic, and the commons were particularly worried about the home front, if I can use such an anachronistic term. During the Anglo-Spanish War, Spain had routinely promised and provided aid to Catholics and other dissenters, in England and in Ireland. The Earl of Tyrone was one particular beneficiary, and although it wasn't overly helpful in the end, reopening war with Spain would invite similar interference. In March, James informed Parliament that, in order to fight the war that they, broadly speaking, wanted, then he needed five subsidies and ten fifteenths as well as an annual payment of a subsidy and two-fifteenths. This would clear his debts, which were very close to a million pounds, and pay for the raising and provisioning of an expeditionary force. It was, by all accounts, a completely reasonable request. These were the costs of making war. The commons, however, collectively balked at the sheer amount, Charles and Buckingham stepped in to try and ease their concerns, spinning the war as only requiring a mere £240,000. 
This was not enough for any kind of prolonged conflict, and everyone knew it. There were many members of the Commons that feared that, after a reign full of failed attempts to pay off his debts through Parliament, perhaps this was merely the latest attempt. Perhaps the promise of war was merely that, a promise to be immediately discarded by the King as soon as Parliament paid off his debts. To avoid this possibility, it was proposed that James make a formal declaration of war. Then, any taxation would have to be spent in prosecuting it, instead of disappearing into the pockets of the king's favourites. For his part, James feared that if he declared war like Parliament wanted, there was no going back, and he might be left high and dry by the Commons, and stuck in a war with no way to pay for it. Such was the breakdown of trust between King and Parliament. Buckingham once again stepped in, as personally invested in the war as he was, to propose that any subsidies voted by Parliament be ring-fenced and explicitly stated to be used for fighting a war, preventing the funds from being used to shore up the Crown's finances. Middlesex opposed this, since he'd hoped to do just that. This was a policy dispute being fought at court, with Parliament as both a spectator and a weapon to be used in the fight. We spoke earlier about the growing rift between Middlesex and Buckingham. He had been a client of Buckingham and owed his position at court to the favourite after the death of his previous Howard patron. But Middlesex had begun seeing Buckingham as the primary obstacle to true financial solvency, which was probably true. In 1622, he had tried the old chestnut of distracting the king with a newer, younger model, placing his brother-in-law in the king's path. This backfired spectacularly, because as with the Howards' attempt, Buckingham was well aware of the danger. Middlesex didn't seem to try again, but the damage was done. Their relationship would never be the same. Combined with Middlesex's success at cutting costs and increasing revenue, which directly conflicted with the Villiers family's graft, Middlesex moved out of the Duke's shadow and into his sights. A couple of episodes ago, we heard about how Middlesex, then merely Lionel Cranfield, had helped orchestrate the downfall of Francis Bacon. He had used Parliament to do it, having allied MPs bring charges of corruption against the Lord Chancellor. Bacon was impeached, and briefly imprisoned, and forever banned from holding public office. I mentioned how, in doing so, Cranfield had helped dig his own grave. Well, on the 4th of April, 1624, the Commons hit Middlesex with charges of corruption. This act was almost certainly orchestrated by Prince Charles, the Duke of Buckingham, or most likely both of them in tandem. Middlesex was absolutely guilty, of course he was. He was a government minister, of course he was corrupt. But the amount was surprising, even so. Even James was apparently surprised at quite how much his Lord Treasurer had squirrelled away, even as he saved the Crown thousands of pounds. Professor Croft estimates that Middlesex's income in 1624 was even higher than Buckingham, which is certainly an achievement. It was because he had threatened that income, as well as opposing the war both Duke and Prince wanted, that he fell. Parliament impeached him, in the same way they had done for Bacon, 
and Middlesex was arrested and stripped of his titles. He remained in the Tower for three days after Parliament adjourned for summer, but while Buckingham was away from London, James had him released, and a year later he would be formally pardoned. He had been a loyal and competent servant to James, and had been something of a financial miracle worker, even while skimming from the top. James didn't protect him from Parliament, but he would do what he could after the fact. As David Smith puts it, quote, The attack on Middlesex was a notable instance of political conflict within the court and council spilling over into Parliament, and, as James presently warned both Buckingham and Charles, to foment such parliamentary pressure was a dangerous game. James was still willing to sacrifice unpopular ministers when needed. He had done so many times, whether he wanted to or not. This was a very important element of kingship, since it kept the monarch free from criticism. He was protected by virtue of his subjects being able to blame evil counsellors for unpopular policies. By cutting them loose, the king was able to avoid taking the blame and showed that he listened to his subjects' concerns. Would he have given up Buckingham if alternative scapegoats hadn't been available in 1621 and 1624? I believe he would have, had the situation been dire enough. He would have hated it, of course, and delayed for as long as he could, but he would have. This is one element of governance that Charles would not share with his father. The ruthless streak towards his ministers would be lacking in Charles, who, as we shall see, remained loyal and protective of those he cared for, despite it repeatedly tarnishing his royal reputation, and would learn the lesson far too late. Towards the end of the first, and only, session of the 1624 Parliament, the earlier fervour for war faded, while the hatred of Buckingham resurfaced. That Buckingham would have a large role to play in any war hampered attempts to present a united pro-war front to the king. This only added to the other disagreements over exactly what a war would be fought over and how it would be accomplished. When Parliament prorogued for the summer, they had voted the king some subsidies, but nowhere near enough to either start a war or to restore the treasury. The Commons still hadn't even agreed that they would actually restore the Palatinate to Frederick, so divided were they over what war would actually mean. Now here I find some contradictions in my reading. Professor Smith's Stuart Parliaments describes James as proroguing Parliament with a magnanimous speech. However, Professor Croft, in her biography of James, describes his closing speech as antagonistic enough that the king ordered the Lord Keeper to prevent it from being published or copied. Whichever way the rhetoric blew, it's likely that James did intend to recall Parliament, but circumstances would keep delaying it until James was no longer in a position to do so. Parliament's hawkish rhetoric had, however, convinced Prince Charles that the Commons had committed to war. As personally involved as he was, he had been dishonoured by the Spanish deception after all. Should Parliament fail to uphold their commitment, he would not be best pleased. The Spanish match had failed on almost every level, perhaps most directly in that it had left Charles unmarried. It goes without saying that marriage between nobility, especially royalty, was not merely personal, 
and Charles's bachelor status was valuable to attract potential allies. James had wished for this ally to be the King of Spain, but as that was not about to happen, after all, the prince and his new bestie Buckingham looked elsewhere. While still in Madrid, but after the Spanish match was a self-evident failure, Buckingham had proposed the idea of a marriage to the French princess Henrietta Maria, sister to King Louis XIII. Like Maria Anna, the French princess was a Catholic, and while this was unfortunate in the opinion of many of Charles's future subjects, it wasn't a deal-breaker. Spain was genuinely unpopular, whereas France hadn't been England's great rival for half a century. A union with the Bourbon dynasty was much more politically palatable back home. The idea of a French match gradually began to gain momentum throughout 1624 and into 1625. The French counterpart to England's Duke of Buckingham and Spain's Count de Olivares was Cardinal Richelieu, who would come to dominate French politics in April 1624. Richelieu and his sovereign Louis XIII were both broadly anti-Habsburg. They were, after all, surrounded on south and eastern borders by Habsburg realms, but they had no interest in restoring the Palatinate to Frederick. James did at least consider the option of a non-Spanish marriage, and had written to the French court promising a vague relaxing of restrictions on English Catholics, but James would not see his son married. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price, and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Over the last few episodes, we've touched on James's health occasionally. He had been carried to open Parliament in 1621, unable to walk from arthritis and gout. He had been spending less and less time in London, his old excuse, if you remember back to our first narrative episode, of requiring time away from the city for his health, had been becoming more and more true as the years went on. Many of his teeth had fallen out by this stage, and he repeatedly suffered from kidney stones. 
In September 1624, his arthritis, which had become more bearable in recent months, returned with a vengeance. It was so painful that James, the monarch who, more than most, ruled through the pen, could not even write his own name. Over the following November and December, he was resolutely unavailable to all but his closest servants and ministers, while his closest servant, the Duke of Buckingham, was himself often nowhere to be seen. In these final months, the relationship between James and George Villiers becomes almost pitiful. The king had loved Villiers, sexually or otherwise, for almost a decade. He had promoted him at an astonishing rate, and plied him with gifts and incomes far beyond any but those within the royal family itself. And yet, Buckingham was remarkably difficult to reach for the sickening king. The duke was, rather pragmatically, if cruelly, further ingratiating himself with the future monarch, Charles, no matter how often James wrote to him, begging him to visit him. With the new year, despite suffering greatly from gout, James met with ambassadors. But by March, he was ill with fever, and fainted repeatedly. To cope with the pain, the king turned to the great medicinal staple, alcohol. James had a reputation for drunkenness that isn't quite fair, and seems to stem from his early years in London, when rumours spread about royal feasts. The visit by Christian of Denmark was one such event, where tales of drunken orgies took on lives of their own. Still, James was in ill health, and part of that was down to the amount of alcohol he drank. When faced with the crippling pain of his ailments, he only drank more, and since many of those ailments were themselves caused or exacerbated by drink, they got worse. Later in March, the king suffered a stroke and contracted dysentery. The Duke of Buckingham had been en route to Paris to help facilitate Charles's betrothal when he received the news that James was in his final hours. Luckily, he hadn't reached his ship, and raced back to Theobald's as soon as he heard. James died on the 27th of March, 1625, at the age of 58, from a combination of stroke, fever, and dysentery. He had been King of Scotland for 57 years, since he was just a year old, and he had been King of England and Ireland for 22 years and three days. His final hours had been at Theobald's house, the great manor he had purchased from the Earl of Salisbury in the early years of his English reign. James's early Scottish reign was tumultuous, even for a regency. His regents all died suddenly, be it by assassination, battle, a possible poisoning, and an unwilling date with the maiden. When he came into his majority, James brought the famously independent Scottish lords to heel, and extended royal authority far further than any of his ancestors. Violence was never more than a sturdy door away, as he found in his dealings with his cousin, the Earl of Bothwell. He had overseen the two largest witch hunts in Scottish history, and contributed his own thoughts to the volatile scholarly debate on the topic. His peaceful accession to the English and Irish thrones brought the entire British Isles under the de jure rule of a single individual for the first time in history, and with relatively little blood. 
This had not been a guarantee, and James shares as much credit for this achievement as Salisbury and the Howards. Once in London, James's ambition for a formerly united kingdom would come to little. Despite styling himself as King of Great Britain, neither of his British kingdoms would agree to a formal political union. The English, because they could and would not conceive of a union of equals, and the Scots, because they would and could not countenance a union of anything but equals. In Ireland, the flight of the earls accelerated royal control over the island, with vast tracts of land in the north being planted with English and Scots colonists. His centralising policies in Scotland continued after his departure, and his government continued without significant instability, despite his absence. In the New World, it was under James that the first successful English colonies were established, with the plantations of Virginia, Bermuda, Plymouth, Newfoundland and St Kitts. The East India Company would enjoy ridiculous profits under James and establish their first factories in the East. In terms of foreign policy, James can be praised for his commitment to international peace. Under his rule, his three kingdoms would avoid war and help keep the European peace. Once war broke out, James was devoted to finding a negotiated settlement to stop the bloodshed. His naivete with the Spanish can be put down to this. The hope, however faint, that an Anglo-Spanish marriage was possible and that this would help bring an end to war. And while, with the benefit of hindsight, it seemed like a fool's errand, he never gave up on peace, and tried every angle. He was the most veteran statesman in Europe on his death, and his voice was heard respectfully, but largely ignored on the ground. He perhaps came closest to peace with a conference held in Brussels between May and September 1622 hosted by the widowed Archduchess of the Netherlands, Isabella, and attended by representatives from James, the Emperor, and the Spanish, it attempted to establish a truce, and then bring about a permanent peace. The conference fell through when the Bavarians continued their siege of Heidelberg and captured it. No other ruler in Europe, not the Emperor, not Philip III or his son the Fourth, not even the Pope, invested as much time and energy into bringing about a bloodless peace. Croft puts it best, quote, James had shown greater Christian leadership and insight than the papacy. To the king's lasting credit, he alone among European rulers made sustained attempts to bring hostilities to a close. If his efforts had succeeded, Europe would have been spared the following 26 years of bloody conflict. Within England itself, James's achievements are more debatable. Partly, he suffers from being bookended by Elizabeth and Charles. With his son, often the question is, how well did James prepare him? How many of the faults of Charles's reign or his personality can be laid at the foot of James? His style of government and his struggles with Parliament contrasts greatly with Elizabeth and the Tudors, who were experts at massaging their public image and winning over their parliaments. James disliked public speaking, he disliked public contact, he hated meeting with petitioners, sitting for portraits, or even being in London itself. He was highly competent at his preferred method of governing, the written word, but this had its limitations. The literate were relatively few, 
and an argument for royal policy could be disagreed with. The splendour and authority of a Tudor procession or portrait couldn't be as easily countered. Discontent with the king's extended absences from court, for hunting and other sports, were noted by foreign ambassadors as being excessive, and caused no end of headaches for his ministers. James's court became an increasing liability, as his failure to control its image meant that instances such as the Overbury scandal, the widespread corruption, the nepotism, and the rumoured decadence spread far and wide, and inflamed popular opinion against the court. The rise and continued dominance of the Villiers clan, with Buckingham at its head, was the most unpopular, and Charles's continued reliance on the Duke would mire his early reign. James's insistence that the royal marriage was to be decided by the king, and the king alone, to the point of dissolving Parliament and attempting to suppress published criticism, only showed quite how out of touch the court had become. The poisoned chalice of George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, was perhaps the worst thing James could bequeath to his son. Professor Michael B. Young describes the Duke as, quote, arguably the worst part of James's legacy. He was depicted as unmanly, and his rise to power was well known to be due to James's infatuation with him. James had been able to handle Buckingham, as he had handled the Earl of Somerset and his other favourites. His experience as a child and as a young adult had made him wise to over-mighty courtiers. Charles had no such experience. He didn't appreciate the danger of powerful ministers, and this inexperience would cost him. If court favourites slash male lovers are one of the things that James's reign is known for, then his dealings with Parliament are the other. Generally, he is known for having a poor relationship with the commons, seeing them as a restraint on his divinely ordained rights as king, and trying to rule without them whenever he could. This is true, to an extent. But Smith argues, quite persuasively, that this reputation for intractability is overblown. He repeatedly sacrificed unpopular ministers to appease Parliament, he compromised on important issues such as the monopolies, and while there was distrust between King and Parliament, each new session opened with the spirit of harmony. James's two primary issues with Parliament, Smith writes, was firstly that he tended to lecture Parliament on what its job was. MPs tend not to like that as a rule, considering the rights and responsibilities of Parliament were several centuries in the making, and fiercely protected. Especially considering many MPs were, openly or otherwise, xenophobic towards Scots, and didn't relish the experience of being lectured about an English institution by a Scot, even if he was their king. So that was one. The other was James's tendency to naively assume that Parliament would do what he wanted without guidance. Particularly during the 1621 session, he wasn't even in London while his Privy Council and his son tried to handle Parliament. He hadn't given them enough guidance on what he wanted, and so they struggled to enforce the King's will. Partly this stems from James's expectations as a monarch, his subjects will do as they are told. But when compared to the smaller and relatively compliant Scottish Parliament, 
James's difficulties with the English Parliament are less surprising. But aside from moments of fury and many occasions where James was tactless in his comments, his relationship with Parliament was not completely different to his predecessor. Smith judges that, quote, if his words on occasion generated needless controversy, his actions often tended to diffuse tensions rather than escalate them. So, James the Sixth and First is dead. At his deathbed, in tears, are the Duke of Buckingham and Prince Charles. Although with his father's last breath, Charles was a mere prince no more. Now King, Charles comforted the crying Duke and promised that he would not cast him aside. While kind, this was not the kind of continuity that many of his subjects wished for. Parliament, which had technically been merely prorogued in the months since May 1624, was formally dissolved with James's death, as they always are, and when they came back, they would make their opinions known. So that is the end of James, the great peacemaker, the first king of England, Scotland and Ireland, and the king who oversaw the beginning of the British Empire. For the king whose mother and son would both die at the headsman's block, dying in bed, surrounded by his loved ones, isn't a bad way to go, even if it was from a drawn-out and unpleasant illness. The next episode will be in roughly three weeks' time, at the beginning of September, as I prepare for the new reign, and I suppose I should work on my thesis. In the meantime, the new categories have now launched on Apple Podcasts, with history as its own category. Depending on which country's store you look at, Pax Britannica is in the top 100 history podcasts, as I say this, which is amazing. Listeners can now browse for new shows more easily, and reviews are the best way to convince them to give the show a try. So please consider taking the time to leave one. This episode has come out on, or the day after, the sixth month anniversary of Pax Britannica's launch. I really can't believe that it's been half a year already. I've had a lot of fun, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. Here's to another six months. Thank you to the peers of the realm, the royal headsman, executed today, Her Grace the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Right Honourable, Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner, the Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence, the Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson, the Earl of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns, the Earl of Nottingham, John Toogood, the Earl of Worcester, Alan Goldstein, and the Right Honourable Stephen, Earl of Warwick. Remember that you can join the peerage at patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.